Another story is that I like this is uh, Plato had defined uh, man, that is Anthropos, human being, as a featherless biped. And uh, Diogenes came to the academy and held up a plucked chicken and said, behold, Plato's man. After which the disciples added with broad, flat nails to the, to the definition. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 140. And this episode is with John Burgess, who is John and Woodhull Professor of Philosophy at Princeton University, where he works in mathematical and philosophical logic, and also the philosophy of math, and where he is in those subjects, one of the absolute reigning legends and authorities in the field. So this episode is dedicated to a single topic, and that's realism in the philosophy of mathematics. And I keep having in mind every time I do a philosophy of math episode that I will be able to keep it simple and to the absolute basics, but each time the conversation quickly gets out of my hands. So this wasn't quite as introductory as I had hoped it would be. And maybe one day I'll do a solo episode on some of these topics, but we still take things from the beginning. And that's with the question of just what realism in mathematics is. And as a bit of a teaser, though, of course, we explicate this at length. While the question is debated, realism concerns the degree or sort of commitment one ought to have to the mind-independent truth of mathematical theorems or the mind-independent existence of the objects that those theorems when taken at face value, describe. After talking a bit about this, we get into set theory, which is the branch of mathematics that most closely connects to philosophy and questions of realism. And in doing so, we discuss some problems about infinity from within set theory that bring out different mathematicians' philosophical attitudes. That's how we get into the landscape of realism, where some mathematicians believe there's a literal universe of mathematical objects. Others think there are many universes of mathematical objects. Others think the notion of infinity is itself inherently meaningless. Some that math is really just a man-made language and it's a tool and it's nothing more and the list goes on. Likes, comments, subscribes, reviews, follows, tweets, retweets. These are all very much appreciated. Now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with John. You did your undergraduate at Princeton in mathematics with a, a thesis in probability logic and then a master's in math, and then your PhD was in the department at Berkeley that Tarkovsky established, and that's the the group in logic and methodology of science where you worked on set theory. So at that point, I mean, it looks to me from the outside like you might have been poised to go into a math department. So why did you end up at Princeton or how in the philosophy department instead? Well, <clears throat> um. Logic is in this sort of border area, and it's not quite large enough to have departments of its own. 
So we're spread out among math departments and philosophy departments and computer science departments. Now, I've always been interested in, in philosophy. I mean, I, and that's why I was working in logic rather than except for the master's uh, what's called core mathematics. I mean, of course, you take a lot of it as a math major, but and my MA was in that, but logic was almost, always my, my real core interest. And that was uh, the program was interdepartmental, so I was already doing philosophy there. And uh, some of the things, uh, some, some of the seminars were quite interesting. Um, so I got gradually drawn into this thing. I think this, this philosophy seminar I liked the best was taught by Charles Jahara. And then um, as I was finishing up there, just after leaving, he came out with this book, Ontology and the Vicious Circle Principle. So uh, it began by quoting something from Quine and saying, when I first read this, I wrote in the margin, this philosophical thesis should be soundly refuted. <laughs> and my own reaction was to Jahara's thesis similarly. So um, I drew but then when I tried to, you know, set down uh, what I really thought was wrong with it, it took me, it took me five years or something before I actually finished a paper on why I'm not a nominalist. Hmm. Okay. So nominalism then was one of the questions that you were originally interested in as you were going into or transitioning from your doctoral studies to being a professor. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct now in memory. I spent a year in the math department at Wisconsin. I got a, a two-year postdoc there. It's one of the few math departments that has a really large presence in logic. Um, so I was there, uh, and I was still working on logic things. And then the uh, job at Princeton opened up, and so I applied for it, and I came out to be interviewed. And um, I still remember at some point someone asked me, you know, well, why do you think a department like ours would be interested in hiring someone who does, you know, Journal of Symbolic Logic type logic? And my answer was, uh, I was wondering that myself. But unfortunately, that didn't, fortunately, uh, that, that didn't disqualify me. I guess Dick Jeffrey probably was uh, responsible for saving me from the effects of that. So I got the job here, but the whole time before I had tenure, I was always trying to keep one foot in both, in both, uh, in both camps. Mm -hmm. And I did get um, shortly after I got promoted here, I got an offer from the math department, Ohio State, it was arranged by, or a joint joint position actually, arranged by Harvey Friedman mostly. <clears throat> so. But from that point on, I actually stayed in the philosophy side of things. Yeah. And for our listeners who don't know, I mean, Ohio State still to this day is one of the absolute giants in philosophy of math. And I, in, instead of starting off by asking you about those initial questions you were interested in, so nominalism in particular, since... Most of our listeners, though, I, I've done a number of episodes on the philosophy of math. So with Joel David Hampkins, uh, Justin Clark Doan, Graham Priest, some people that I've spoken to about it. It's been a while, so I don't want to presume much background in the philosophy of math from our listeners. So I think the best place for us to start is really with 
precisely the landscape and the philosophy of math and explicating some of the, the key terminology there. So from my experience, different philosophers associate different things with the default position, which is, I think you'll agree with me, mathematical realism. And perhaps what they associate with it are objectivity or Platonism, but those aren't the same things. So first off, since I take it that you identify as a mathematical realist, just how do you think of mathematical realism quite broadly construed as distinct from your own particular variety? Well, I think fundamentally what it is, is a willingness to repeat in the philosophy seminar room, the things in mathematical logic that you'd say outside the philosophy room, instead of, you know, doing one thing when you're figuring your income tax, or if you work in a more technical area too, you know, doing the applying the mathematics that's used there and then taking it all back when you come in the philosophy room and say, well, really, that was just, that's just a fiction. I was pretending to believe it and so forth. So it's not apologizing for the things thinking, thinking in the ordinary way. Hmm. So let me try to give an example. So in the mathematics room, you might say there are an infinite number of pairs of uh, prime numbers that differ by two. And one might expect a, a non-realist might say outside of the math room, well, I don't actually believe that there are these numbers. It was just sort of a, a matter of speech in the mathematics classroom. But the realist says, no, 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 even outside of the math classroom, I, I really do believe that there are an infinite number of pairs of prime numbers of this sort. Yeah, I guess that's okay. And I think of it the other way is not having to take anything back, you know, in the face of these philosophers who use the mathematics in the ordinary way when they're doing ordinary subjects and, and um, then want to take a best say it was all fiction when they get in the philosophy room. <clears throat> so one possible dimension of mathematical realism is mathematical Platonism. And I think that is within the realist camp, maybe the the default position. How do you think about mathematical Platonism? How do you describe what it is and why, if it is distinct from, if related to uh, mathematical realism? Well, um, Princeton is a great center for the study of classical philosophy. And there is one of my colleagues who's probably the world expert on Plato's epistemology. Uh, I think what has come to be called Platonism is only very, very indirectly connected um, <clears throat> back to Plato. However, if we forget about the real Plato, what his reputation was already in antiquity, uh, you can see in the Diogenes Laertius, which is an ancient account of gossip about philosophers. It goes on for two volumes and mentions all the schools. And so <clears throat> there's a story in there about um, Diogenes the Cynic coming to Plato's Academy, and Plato was lecturing, and he was talking about the form of tableness and the form of cupness and so forth. And Diogenes said, <clears throat> oh, Plato, um, the... Uh, table and the cup I see, but the, but the tables and cupness I know wise perceive. And uh, uh, Plato said, 
very natural below Diogenes because you have eyes with which to discern the table on the cup, but lack intellect by which you find these other things. That's a good so, one. Um, uh, I think that something really deserved to be called Platonism, you would have to believe some kind of epistemological doctrine of which the, we have some kind of relation to the mathematical objects that is somehow parallel to the relation we have to physical objects and that our knowledge, you know, maybe light doesn't shine down on us, but maybe netic rays shine down and affect our pineal glands or something. And that's how we get objects. So that's what that's certainly what anti-Platonists always seem to think that Platonists must believe. Um, so uh, and of course, I don't believe anything like that. Hmm. Yeah, well, Kurt Gödel, I mean, one of the most important logicians of the 20th century, if not, I mean, all time, he certainly espoused that belief that the structures or objects of set theory, and we'll get into this more uh, in a few minutes, do present themselves to the mathematical intellect in some way analogous to sense perception. But I, I'm I'm just curious, this this quote of Plato's where he says, you lack intellect, do you happen to know if that comes from a dialogue he wrote in which he was a character? So he might have had time to come up with that witty remark or if it was just something that somebody else reported him as having said? Oh, well, this thing was written, you know, about, I'm a little unclear on my dates, but at least 400 years after Plato. Okay. So in the meantime, his school had had time to invent lots and lots of anecdotes about him. Uh, the uh, Diogenes Laertius is not thought to be reliable on any historical question or Rather, at any given point, he's as no more, no less reliable than whatever source he's copying at that point. And most of these sources are lost and we don't know what they were. And most of them, um, if the story sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Another story is that a lot like this is uh, Plato had to find a uh, man that is anthropos, human being, as a featherless biped. And uh, Diogenes came to the academy and held up a plucked chicken and said, behold, Plato's man, after which the disciples added with broad, flat nails to the to the definition. <laughs> so and I was surprised to find there actually was this some some text where it gave not just the featherless biped definition, but did add, in fact, the broad, flat nails. That's very and good. This is opposed to you know, Aristotle, sort of rational animal. That's supposed to describe the essence of the thing, you see, whereas the other thing's just it happens to be accidentally the only thing that has these two properties of featherless and bipedality. Hmm. Well, I, I think that having this vocabulary in our background is going to be very helpful, and we'll soon get into some more specifics and cases. But one last question I wanted to ask, and this one might be more nuanced because I have the sense that different people use this term in very different ways. But I, I take the term I have in mind is objectivity. And maybe you don't find it a, a useful term in the philosophy of math, but how do you think of it if you do in relation to realism? Well, let's see. It's not a term that I make a great deal of use of myself. There's a famous uh, saying attributed to <clears throat> the late George Kreisel that uh, the issue with the 
intuition between intuitionists and the classical mathematicians, which was the big controversy in the 30s, <clears throat> is not about uh, the existence of mathematical objects, but about the objectivity of mathematical truth. And that's uh, where Michael Dummett starts. And he has introduced his own sense of realism, or rather his own sense of anti-realism, because he's anti and realism would be the opposite of that, which doesn't have too much directly to do with the uh, ontological question about the existence of objects. He's probably happy to say that the numbers exist, provided you have a constructive proof of the existence, but not if you don't. Um, so there just are these these two these two usages, and you have to be aware of that if you do things. I guess in the anthology of some of my collected papers called Mathematics Models and Modality or Mathematics Modality and Models, uh, the first thing I say in the preface is you only have to distinguish these two senses of realism, realism versus nominalism and realism versus idealism. Only no one who's an, no idealist today wants to call themselves openly an idealist, so they say anti-realist. Um, so those are just two different those are just two different controversies. In fact, uh, uh, Dummett, <clears throat> who was sort of the arch supporter of the philosophical supporter of constructivism and anti-realism in his sense, also was the author of one of the earliest and, and uh, most telling criticisms of nominalism, though um, it seems to have been overlooked by too many potential readers. So it's possible you know, to be an anti-realist in one sense and a realist in another sense. And you just, after a while, have to get used to that sort of thing. Crispin Wright somewhere says, um, well, nowadays, if someone, um, <clears throat> say, philosopher of science, uh, begins a lecture by announcing that she's a realist, um, what she's accomplished is the same as clearing her throat. Basically, that's to say you're a realist isn't going to isn't really going to inform your audience of anything if they know uh, how promiscuously this word is used and how many very different senses. Hmm. Well, here is what I had in mind, though it might be and anticipating something we get to in the future, but something like the continuum hypothesis or the continuum problem. Either there is a an infinite cardinality between the cardinality of the natural numbers and the real numbers, or there isn't, uh, in a non-objective, in an objective sense, the, if one is objective, there either is or there isn't. But if you are an anti-objectivist, you might say that it could be true and it could be false, but it depends on the particular set theoretic universe you're referring to. So that's what I had in mind by objectivity, but we'll, we might get to that. So for now though, you, I saw that you, well, I could say something about that now. Sure. Um, sure. Sure. So accepting that, uh, <clears throat> except that either, <clears throat> um, there is no intermediate cardinal or there is an intermediate cardinal. <clears throat> what that means is you can prove a theorem by cases, by saying, suppose there is an intermediate cardinal, we argue this way and get at this conclusion, and suppose there isn't, we argue some other way and get the conclusion, and that's enough to establish a conclusion. The intuitionists will not accept that because they don't accept the principle of excluded middle, but you always have P or not P. But classically, you can always argue that way. Also, 
it seems very widely um, to assert something like there is no intermediate cardinal and asserting that it's true <clears throat> seem to come to the same thing. So it looks like I'm saying if the continuum hypothesis is the statement that there's no intermediate cardinal, <clears throat> I'm saying when I'm saying, well, either there is or there isn't an intermediate cardinal, I'm saying either this continuum hypothesis is false or it's true. Uh, and that's that's just a rewording of the same thing. You have to struggle to get defined to make there be some other <laughs> some other uh, <clears throat> question there uh, that you could disagree about. <clears throat> because the way, the way things stand, it certainly is legitimate mathematically. There aren't a whole lot of examples, but there are some examples to argue by cases on the continuum hypothesis. And there also doesn't seem to be any evidence in mathematics of people using P, and it's true that P in some contrasting ways, that the two things were different. So it comes down to either it's continuing hypothesis is true or it's not true. Uh, so those are the things you say outside, you know, when you're doing mathematics. Now, inside the philosophy room, there are various ways people might try to take that back and say, well, actually, when we're talking, um, I mean, not not the crude way of saying <clears throat> there aren't really any of these objects. And when we talk about them, we're just playing a game. But they can say, um, I know it. What can they say? Well, there are various ranges of things we could have been talking about when we were talking about sets. And though for each of them, it's either true or it's not true that there's an intermediate cardinal. It's not the case that one of those two possibilities is the same for all of them. Okay, so I don't buy that either. But um, so I'm I'm much more ready to stick to the. Um, stick to the plain statement. But on the other hand, I really not worried <clears throat> if one one should believe that we're never going to know which. You know whether we don't have any idea of what anyway going forwards. There are programs going forwards, and they haven't actually. Well, some people would say they've gotten quite far, and other people would say they didn't. They haven't, but right. No, I would very much like to talk about Wooden and Colner in particular shortly. But just to respond to what you said, yes, the this intuitionist idea or their relationship to objectivity isn't what I had in mind. But of course, it's extremely important. What I had in mind, and you got to this more in the second half of your response, is the idea basically that the continuum hypothesis is sort of trivially true in the set theory that's ZFC plus CH, and it is false in the set theory that is ZFC uh, plus the negation of the continuum hypothesis. So in that sense, the question of the continuum hypothesis is not, uh, I mean, there's anti-objectivity or pluralism. Well, um, I would I would not say that it's true in one theory and not true in the other theory. It's implied by one theory, and this negation is implied by the other theory. But uh, just having the theory there doesn't, for me, doesn't mean make there exist any universe in which the things the theory says are true. Right, right, right. So, uh, so I would not I would not say, oh, there are these two different universes. This one it's true, and that one it's false. There are different models of set theory, but no model encompasses the whole universe. 
and the truth about uh, you can easily believe their models of all sorts of combinations of things. That's how you show that uh, various uh, propositions are not decidable on the basis of the axioms you've already agreed on. But that's not at all saying that the that the, the, the universe is undecided about these things. Saying that we're we're undecided as much theory as we produced is undecided, but that's a statement about us, right? I'm I'm here anticipating a, I guess a, a very robust multiverse type view, but f- for now, since I think we we've gotten a bit farther into set theory than uh, maybe would have been best for the the people who don't know what set theory is. You recently just published an introductory text I saw with. Cambridge Elements in Philosophy and Logic, this series in Philosophy and Logic on Set Theory. And set theory, as has already uh, become evinced by our conversation, should form, I think, a very nice backdrop for us to discuss in a bit more detail the realist landscape. So first off, since we won't be able to get into the very technical dimensions of the field, I'll flag now that I well, did that's a... good because I actually st- <laughs> stopped following the work of Wooten in this school uh, quite a number of years back. You know, I think after the first time he changed his mind uh, from believing the continuous Aleph 2 to believing it's Aleph 1, I sort of stopped following them. I know there have been developments um, since they're in various kinds, and some people have very strong feelings that they're now really on the track of the thing. But we've had those feelings before, and then the track didn't lead to mm-hmm. what we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I was just going to say that for my listeners, I did a or our listeners, I did an episode with the Catalan set theorist Joan Bagaria on set theory alone it was a couple of hours and change i think somewhere in the 90s if people want to go back for background but just how would you introduce the the basic notion of set and then maybe set theory to some poor soul who asked you this in passing at a party oh well i've settled on a way i do that i do the introduction of the book but the book is addressed as if writing to a student of mathematics is already familiar with some mathematics. Um, <clears throat> and the way I get into it is historical. Uh, there were some theorems, doesn't matter what the theorem says, that hold of a function if the function is well-behaved at every point. So we don't need to go into what, what is meant by being well-behaved, but. Uh, there are different ways a function could be well-behaved or not well-behaved. It could be smooth or not have a gap or something. But if it's well-behaved in the appropriate sense, a certain appropriate theorem holds. And then Cantor's career began by his showing, well, you can allow one exceptional point where it isn't well-behaved, and nonetheless, the theorem still follows. And then he says, well, actually, you can allow two or three or any finite number of them. And even you can allow infinitely many, provided they're all isolated from each other. That means for each of the exceptional points, uh, like so, there's a little interval around it. So there are no other other exceptional points in the interval between the two ends. And if, if, if there can be infinitely many, provided they're isolated. Well, actually, you can allow for one sort of doubly exceptional point, an exceptional point that isn't isolated from all exceptional points, if there's only one of them. 
Well, really, you could allow finitely many of them. And actually, you could allow finitely many of them, infinitely many of them, if they're all isolated from each other. And actually, there could be a triply exceptional point. So at some point, as you go through this, uh, restating the stronger and stronger theorems of Cantor, you just, it's entirely natural to switch over from talking about <clears throat> in the plural of the points where the function isn't well behaved to talking in the singular about the set of points where the things aren't well behaved. And um, what it means to treat that as an object in mathematics, what it means to treat it as an object is it's something you can perform operations on. And the relevant operation here is that of throwing away the isolated points. So Cantor's theory says, if you look at the at the points where the function goes bad, if they're all isolated, then the theorem holds. If you throw away the ones that are isolated, that the ones that are left are isolated from each other, well, then the theorem still holds. Well, even if there is some left there that aren't isolated, if you throw away the ones of them that are isolated and look and look what's left, if, if that, um, you know, <clears throat> If, the, if this process eventually disappears, you take this out, throw out the isolated things, throw out the isolated things of what's left, throw out the isolated things of what's left after that, and so on. If that process at any stage makes everything go away, then the theorem holds. So this is the form Cantor's theorem uh, first took. And then he had the thought, well, you know, after I've done it once and twice and three times and four times, there's a sense in which I can do it infinitely many times. Uh, there could be... It could be the case you had a function such that um, no, remember, no, no matter how many times you perform this operation of throwing away isolated points, there'd always be one ill-behaved point left. Nonetheless, for, for any given point, there'd always be some stage at which, after which it wouldn't be left. So every point gets will be thrown out at some stage, though at no stage have yet, have yet all of them been thrown out. So we can imagine as a, an infinity step after steps one, two, three, four, taking the intersection of everything that's left that you have so far. And so if that's empty, that's enough for the for the theorem to hold. And if it isn't empty, if it becomes empty when you throw away these isolated points and so on. And so Cantor's ordinals were enumerating the steps in the process after you get through all the finite ones. So there's first, second, third, so forth. And then if you've done all of them, he originally called it the infinity -th, but we now call it the omega -th. After the letter omega, and then there's the omega plus first is the next omega plus second, and those are his those are his ordinals, and that's sort of the way that's sort of the way the subject began, um, and it's now um, stating everything in, in mathematically in terms of set theory has become, you know, so ingrained since the. Um, <clears throat> fairly early decades of the 20th century, that it's hard for people to imagine another way of putting things. Though, in fact, if you go back and look at the way people were saying things in the 19th century, they were talking about uh, variables, meaning quantities whose value changes over time. And Frege is very, very critical about this. And, and uh, But people, this is the way people talked. And you can restate it all. Yeah, in the set theoretic language, and you can state things in the set theoretic language that it would be very awkward to try to state in the earlier language. But that's where they come in. It's essentially a new idea. You have a plurality of things, and you think of the plurality of things as being somehow itself a single thing. And what that means is that it's something you can perform operations on. 
So it's not just the numbers can be added, multiplying some of the things you can do to, to the collections of them. Um, so that's where the idea comes in. There's some people who claim that the understanding of the ordinary plural notions, you know, we say there are some things uh, that, that do such and such, um, really means there's a set of things, each of which does such and such in the singular. Um, I find that quite implausible. I think that the idea of thinking of the collectus isn't was an advance of the original way of thinking about the plural, the plurals, and it actually took place at a certain historical stage in the development of thought with Cantor. So that's how I'd come in. This series, The Elements, it's a very strange series. They're these little booklets, and they're all about the same length. And they're all about the same length, whether your subject is set theory, you know, which is a vast part of the, uh, uh, of the logic and mathematical logic, or it's a very specialized little topic. And I think the first two that came out were almost with a whole little booklet on a very specialized little topic. And then there's mine on, on set theory. And of course, the problem, problem for the author um, seems to me becomes much more difficult the broader the thing is going to be because you're not going to be, be able to give full detail about everything. So all you can do is get samples of some detail in the beginning and then gradually describe in more qualitative terms what else is out there after that. So that's what I tried to do in the book. Let. Hmm. Well, maybe uh, uh, before we continue, just to summarize some of the most important details for our our listeners just so they might be able to better follow what's going on what is so significant about set theory is that in addition to the standard logical apparatus you have this one type of object called a set that we can think of as a collection and this one predicate of membership and through this we can reconstruct essentially the vast majority there are some outliers of mathematics so it's this very simple uh, very intuitive idea of course it's highly complex in practice and the proofs are difficult but it's just this very very basic thing that set theorists mathematical logicians uh, can use to form the foundation for all of the rest of mathematics. Is there anything you disagree with there or would want to amplify? Well, I would disagree with foundation. Um, it was, the, the situation was in the 19th century, people were looking back at what had been done in the 18th century when mathematics was developing very rapidly in connection with applications to physics and saw that there was a lot of looseness in the arguments. And uh, it didn't look at all like uh, Euclidean, you think of Euclidean geometry as looking where everything is very logically deduced from an axioms announced in advance. Now, actually, once you start cleaning up the other mathematics, you'll find, you'll notice that Euclid isn't that perfect either. And so, in fact, Euclid's geometry had to be redone. Um, they spent a lot of time 
on the on the number systems, explaining the number systems, and they work to the reverse of the historical order in which they were introduced. So explain complex numbers in terms of real numbers and real numbers in terms of rational numbers and rational numbers in terms of integers. And then the mathematicians were generally content to stop there. If you look at the machinery they were using and getting the higher systems from the lower one, they're already doing things like looking at collections. So they had different words for systems of things. And they were doing things like looking at pairs of things they already have and stuff like that, which we, in retrospect, recognize as essentially set theoretic operations. So they had everything down to set theory plus um, whatever you need for a basic arithmetic at the bottom. Then the really ambitious and philosophically motivated wanted wanted to deduce that too, the from from something still more basic, uh, uh, logical. And what turned out to be the case is that. Um, well, when you try to do that, uh, the most simple and natural thing you come up with was Frege's system, and it turns out to be inconsistent. So then Russell said, well, he could repair it, but then the Russell system, when you look at the repair, it's so complicated. You can't really seriously believe that this is what people had in mind all along or anything like that. Um, so the issue becomes that of, well, can we get something with explicitly stated, you know, primitive notions and primitive assumptions such that we can get uh, number theory from it? If we can, we'll be able to get everything else. And we really need to do that. We can't deal with having separately foundations of geometry and foundations of arithmetic and so forth, because by the 19th century, these subjects are all constantly interacting with each other. And so if you're going to have um, you know, geometry in which there are not any infinitesimals, um, so which Archimedes axiom holds, then you can't have an algebra in which there are infinitesimals. The things are going to have to match up somehow. And so what you really need is a single, a single framework in which you could develop everything. But uh, once you have a framework that that's generous, some of the things that are in there are going to be more basic and more certain than any of your principles of the larger theory. So if the larger theory isn't really forming a framework for these things, the most solid, the things that were the most solid before, they're incorporated and they're able to interact with all these new things and you're able to construct the new branches of mathematics in there. But the old ones are not getting a more solid foundation. They're, they're being put in a more commodious framework. So that's the way I describe it in my book, Rigor and Structure. And there's a paper, Penelope Maddy, in which he also tells a similar story, or that's one of the things that you want a, a foundation to do. Or one of the things you might mean by foundation. So in that sense, it's a foundation. In another sense of making the things more certain, it's not. They, you, you judge by the uh, as Russell was already prepared to say this, you judge by getting the right consequences. You're getting the familiar things back as consequences and not get any paradoxes the way you'd got with Frege systems and others that went on the wrong route. Seth Geary, uh developed by Cantor, he was very, he never made the assumptions that got Frege into trouble, but he was very unclear about what assumptions he was making. And after the paradoxes became known, people decided, well, we're going to have to get clear about that and write them down. And once they've written them down and started thinking about what we can do with it, they found, well, you can do everything. You can do, you can reconstruct the numbers, you can reconstruct all these things in this way. Most of the work, in fact, already having been done, reduction down to the natural numbers, already be having done in the 19th century, though people didn't 
recognize that that's what they were doing at the time. What they were doing is giving a set theoretic reduction of everything to natural numbers. And I'm really, it's not, it's not too much farther to give the to get the natural numbers from set theory too. And so now you have this single system in which you can do all of mathematics. That is all of accepted mathematics. And that's what makes it possible for then for logicians to think we could show that certain questions that have been raised by mathematicians cannot be solved on the basis of all the accepted methods of mathematics by showing that the, the, the set theoretic axioms, which actually uh, accommodate all of the accepted mathematics, uh, don't give an answer to these questions. So that's that's the that's the big develop that was the big development beginning beginning with the girdle but the with the the continuum hypothesis or he did one side of it and then Cohen did the other side of it and then you got a, all sorts of things like that but what makes that possible is that the uh, I mean what makes it interesting is when you say it's not you can't do it in ZFC you don't mean you can't do it in a certain formal system well I mean you do mean that but it's interesting because it, you take it to imply that you can't do it by ordinary mathematical means. And that claim is actually, there's inductive evidence for it. Um, no one has ever, in fact, produced a valid proof one way or the other um, about the continuum hypothesis. Moreover, people who have thought they have done so and uh, written out stuff about that, their work shows all the same marks of crankhood that you find in the work of circle squarers and angle triangle sectors and people are doing other things that are known sort of to be impossible. So that's all I'll say for the moment in that direction. Sure. Uh, I don't, I hear everything that you have said, but I'll, I'll clarify, I guess what I said and, or what I meant. So then I'll start with the ancient Greeks who I think my understanding is they took their foundation, the foundation of their math, was geometry so number theory numbers were modeled as as segments but the existence we discovered in uh, later on much closer to contemporary times of non-euclidean geometry sort of shatters this basis and then today of course there are there the possibility of category theory or homotopy type theory i know that your your once your late colleague, uh, Vladimir Voyevodsky, was working on something called univalent foundations because he had serious issues with ZFC. And there's no uh, consistency proof for ZFC, which is problematic. But what I meant was that it, it, it serves in some sense as a foundation, ZFC, because if you take some important theorem like Fermat's last theorem, the gold standard of proof after which nobody would have, no working mathematicians would have any more doubt about its veracity would be a translation or reconstitution of that proof in ZFC. In that sense, it serves as, uh, I'll say maybe like a more colloquial foundation modulo the, the philosophical disputes about what would, what a foundation would be. Yes. Well, uh, I agree with most of that. The, um, I mean, the history is not quite right. The the Greeks started out trying to think of everything in terms of number, and by number they meant whole numbers. And then when they found out that you couldn't do explain the ratios of the 
square of a side to its diagonal in terms of whole numbers. That was a crisis. And they took the ratios of intervals to describe these other things. But they never thought about them. They never called those numbers. They never called those ratio numbers. By the time you get to Newton, Newton's universal arithmetic, that's what numbers are. Uh, Euclid's definition of number is a plurality of units. And there are number theoretic books in the elements, and they're based on that definition. Well, you can't do anything with that definition, but uh, there, there, there are numbers, but the numbers are solely whole numbers. Those are the only ones that are called numbers. By modern times, they were calling um, these ratios of segment lengths and so forth. Those, those were thought of as numbers too. And then there are certain geometric constructions you could do with them that can be construed as adding the ratios and multiplying the ratios and things like that. Those things have been known since Euclidean geometry. Uh, and then as you say, at a certain period, because of these you know, developments of rival geometries and so forth, people began to think that it would be better if we could have a purely arithmetical foundation for the theory of real numbers. So explain the real numbers in a way that, that doesn't presuppose the geometry. And actually, that proved to be, well, Dedekind did it. It proved to be not so very difficult because the, the hard work had really been done by Eudoxus explaining what it is for two ratios of, of lengths to be equal. And if you look what it amounts to, uh, Eudoxus doesn't call the ratios of lengths uh, numbers, real numbers. He doesn't call the ratios of natural numbers, even rational numbers. He doesn't even speak of that. But what he's saying is, if you speak it the way we do, he's saying that the real number is completely determined by its place among the rational numbers. And so that's what um, that's what Dedekind just took to take that to be the definition of rational number. That is a natural real number. Real number. If you think that you cut the rational numbers into two pieces in, in the way that a uh, a real number would be thought of doing if you believed in real numbers. You can just define that to be the real numbers, and you can show that it has all the right properties. Um, and then you can show the coordinating those real numbers as coordinates uh, in the Cartesian manner. You get back Euclidean geometry. So you get you have one model of Euclidean geometry. Now the other thing about the gold standard, it actually is interesting. There's a there's a um, logician category theorist, Colin McClarty. Um, who claims to have gone through the uh, the chain of references in the first published proof of Fermat's theorem. And if you follow them back, they come to some uh, they come to some uh, well, output of a, a seminar. I've forgotten what the word is now. But uh, in these, there's a yellow series of books that includes things like that. If people have seminars, it's called the uh, so it's called the seminar in algebraic geometry. There are several volumes of it, and some theorems from there do get used. And if you look closely at the theorems, they are using some constructions that actually can't be carried out in ZFC. That you have to now, from a separate sort of point of view, what they need extras, very very little, but it's. Uh, but it's uh, and Zermelo had already suggested it, but you do need something more. And so um, uh, if people were thinking <laughs> that ZFZ was the test, they actually this thing shouldn't have gotten through the first time around. It turns out also the experts don't find it at all difficult to avoid 
this thing. But in terms of the first, if you just follow literally the chain of references, the first way that was written down, it, it includes something that isn't done inside CFC. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for correcting and clarifying my history. I, I very much appreciate that. And now that we've got some set theory on the table, it is time for objectivity and, and Platonism to enter once more. So I already referenced uh, Kurt Gödel when you brought up sense and the intellect and in, in your very nice Plato story. But again, just to amplify, he's maybe the most important set theorist after Cantor. And in his footsteps, there are now Hugh Wooden, once of once of Berkeley in the logic group, and Peter Kulner at Harvard. And I think that they are Platonists, and correct me if you disagree or think I'm misrepresenting that, in that they hold that there is a, a universe of sets, and they're realists in the sense that there are mind-independent truths about these sets, and they're objectivists in the sense that meaningful statements in the language of set theory are either true or false. And how do you you think one, if I, I characterize that correctly, we've seen that I am I make mistakes. And two, how do you think of their position, though granted you said you don't really follow it that much anymore? Okay. Well, uh my first graduate student at Princeton was Penelope Maddie. Oh wow. And her her dissertation was about this passage in, in Gödel, where he seems to say we have something like a perceptions of the objects of set theory. And her goal in the, the dissertation was to try to find an interpretation of this in which it isn't parapsychology, so that there's something you can do with this. But then when you when you do things that way, it isn't it, it, after a while, we looked at it, she, she thought, well, that can't be what actually what Gödel had in mind. But what he did have in mind it's it's not it's not so clear exactly what he had in mind. And when another set theorist sort of endorses it, it's not clear exactly clear what it is they're endorsing. Um, it's just like when there was a period when a lot of physicists all endorsed um, Bohr's interpretation of quantum mechanics. Though I think the great majority of them, in fact, had no idea what, what the, what the this is Bohr's extremely screwly expressed ideas actually. Yeah, I think there's still a dispute to. about it. Yeah. So, um, so that's, uh, so, you know, you could be, uh, somehow you have great esteem for these people. I think it must be onto something, but any attempt to put down what it is, it's not so clear. Uh, Wooden certainly believes that, um, there's some sense in which you can get, all right, an objective answer to the continuum problem. Uh, well, there are other people who also think this. Wooden thinks it's likely to turn out the answer is that uh, there are no intermediate cardinals. And the other group thinks, no, the answer is going to be that there's one intermediate cardinal and no more. And at present, well, the most recent development was that there were two different ways to argue for that second conclusion, and they managed to combine them, find some connection between the two of them. So that seems to make each of the two ways look stronger because it agrees with the other. Though, uh, certainly, there's nothing there that's conclusive that's, that's, that's persuaded anyone outside a rather small circle of people who are, are uh, closely following these developments as they appear 
So we'll see. Well, you'll see. I, I probably won't be around by the time it's settled down, but um, it, it, we'll find out whether they get somewhere or not. What I say in the little booklet at the end is you have to distinguish that question about optimism or pessimism about the prospects for settling these problems from the other, this metaphysical question about whether the abstract optics really exist or just useful fictions. You could, you see, believe that they're, that they're, they're all fictions and yet believe that there is uh, an objective answer, or at least a not completely subjective answer, because you can believe that about things that are admittedly fictions. So you say things like the Sherlock Holmes stories. If someone writes a new one, you can look at that and you can see, you know, that one looks, the, the, the characters are it's very true to the way the characters presented in the original ones. And that looks like a, a, a genuine, a correct correspondence. If someone else has them go off and do something totally different and brings in bunches of other stuff and it may be amusing but it's not a continuation so you can say there is the story even if you think of it's just the story there are natural continuations there are sort of unnatural continuations so you could hope for an objective or non-subject complete not completely subjective answer in that sense and while not believing at all in the sense on the other hand you could believe in the set that big sets exist in the uh, strongest possible sense and that um when God was creating the world, the first thing he said on the first day was, uh, let there be sets. And uh, there were sets, and he saw the sets that they were good, and he divided the sets from, I don't know what, <laughs> the nonsense, uh, the elements. Um, and that was all done in the dark, and then he took up the question of light. You know, So you could believe that and still believe that, well, he hasn't, in fact, reveal to any prophet what the truth is about the continuum thing. And there really probably isn't any other way unless he unless he deigns to do that, that we'll ever find out what the answer is. So you could believe that the questions are completely unanswerable and it's a waste of time to try to answer them, even while believing that the things are are firmly, firmly real. So they're really just two separate questions. What I say about this is, well, Mandy has already said this in several places, but I will end my little booklet by saying that it's the philosophical lesson that set theory is a grand subject whether you think of the one way or the other way on either of these questions my uh mentor has primarily been heim gaifman at columbia and he is very much in this i don't know if, i guess third camp that you've laid out where he has no time whatsoever for metaphysical questions about set theory I still find them very interesting. I think it's there's a lot at stake. If you want to understand mathematics to know whether mathematical objects are uh, fictional like Sherlock Holmes or robustly real and this God created them before everything else and thought they were good sense. So let me ask you, one, if you think I'm right, though, in characterizing Wooden, I guess I, I should probably have him on to ask him. <laughs> but if he is in this robustly real camp and two, how you think about this, where where you fit into these three categories. Ah, uh, well, OK. Um, I think that uh, most of the distinguished set theorists um, if they have opinions about this thing, this thing, they would rather speak for themselves than not have other people putting words in their mouths. I know this was true for, for Robert Solovey, who was my first really serious teacher of set theory. Um, 
and uh, it's it's was it's been true for other people, um, and they don't want the bubble. They don't want to get tied down in these in these philosophical questions. That's like I think. And there's a story about Gelman that was uh, actually, I think, repeated in the Murray old scientific Gelman? American. Yeah, that um, when he introduced the uh, the quark hypothesis, he was very careful not to assert that the things were real or anything. They used to be very transmitted. And they said, well, why didn't you just you know, say that these quarks? And he said, well, I didn't want to get involved you know, with the, uh, in, in debates with the philosophers. Mm-hmm. So I remember Dick Jeffrey used to say to that, look, what are they going to do to you? You know, Galileo, uh, when the philosophers got to him, they showed him the instruments. You know, the Inquisition showed him what they'd apply to him if he didn't if he didn't give up the uh, the earth going around the sun. These other people, what are they going to threaten Merck Gelman with the, the dread word processor? That's not going to, you know, that shouldn't be very frightening. But people just don't want to be bothered by that sort of thing. And so they'll just put it off. And they perceive correctly that it's not going to have much effect on the work they're actually doing. And so they don't uh, they don't get involved. In it. And it's like that with set theory, too. My picture is the big discussion, the big discovery of mathematical logic, uh, which is underappreciated by philosophers, is this, that there is a sequence of stronger and stronger theories. OK, and. Each one is riskier in the sense that the stronger ones can always prove the consistency of the less strong ones. The less strong ones can never prove the consistency of the stronger ones or even their own consistency. So they get more riskier and riskier, but they also get stronger and stronger. And you're able to prove more and more theorems and more and more theorems about very simple things, about the solutions to um, certain kinds of uh, solutions to diophantic equations, they're called. So whether some polynomial thing has has there are integers that that give it the value zero, and you get more answers to those things the more the higher up uh, you go in this series. And the mystery is if you're if you're out to define uh, stronger and stronger theories, um, it's very very easy to contrive artificial ones that just have incomparable strength. You know, the are ones that are weaker than both of them, the ones that are stronger than both of them, but between themselves, you can't comprehend. But none of the natural ones that ever, ever corresponds to anything that anyone has thought was the correct view of where the good mathematics stops and the bad mathematics begins has, has been anywhere other than this one linearly ordered sequence of things. And that's a completely unexplained phenomenon. But the picture is, if you have that picture, um, the... The base that they were having in the 30s, you know, and some people said, well, you must stop here with the finites, you know, this and not go on to more than that. And the intuition is saying, no, you can go on a little further if you think about things constructively, but of course, not too far. And then the predicativist said, well, you can actually go farther than that and do have a, some some bits of set theory. And then it'll, that'll be okay, but it'll be wrong if you put in too much. People don't think of uh, most people don't, uh, logicians anyhow, don't think that way anymore. They don't think there's a place where, where the good begins and the bad, uh, the good ends and the bad begins. They think there are just these trade-offs between uh, the power to prove theorems and the riskiness of the basis on which you're trying to prove them. And that's just something to be lived with. Um, so um, that's what I say about that. When I teach as a students, I always tell them, about the history of this thing, um, uh, 
remind them of the story of the uh, fisherman and his wife and the magic flounder from Grimm's Fairy Tales. Do you know that story? <laughs> well, the fisherman goes out when he lives in a miserable hovel. Well, that's the English translation. The 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 German original says lives in a piss pot with his, with his wife. And uh, every day he goes out and tries to catch a fish so they can have dinner. And so one day he goes out and he catches this great big flounder. And he says, well, this is going to have, have meals for a week from this. Uh, but then the flounder says to him, well, please, Mr. Fisherman, I'm not really a flounder and I wouldn't taste very good. I'm an enchanted prince. Why don't you throw me back in the, in the, uh, in the sea? So he throws the flounder back in the sea and then he has to come home and tell his wife that he doesn't have anything for dinner. And, and he tells her this story and she says, you idiot. Uh, if the flounder could talk, it must have magic powers. You shouldn't have let it go until it did something for you. You go right back down to the sea and ask that ask that flounder for give us a nice cottage instead of a piss pot to live in. And uh, so the this fisherman goes down. And he says, "Flounder, flounder in the sea, I come to beg a boon of thee, and uh, ask for the ask for the cottage." Uh, or says that his wife asks for the cottage, and the flounder says, "Go." She is standing at the door of it already. And he goes back and there she is indeed with this nice cottage. So then they go through a series. They, they're content with something for a little while, but then they always want something more. And so uh, she wants to become a noble, and then she wants to become king, and then she wants to become emperor, and then she wants to become pope. And finally, after she's become pope, um, one day uh, she decides she would like to have the power to command the sun and the moon to rise and set. And uh, people say to her, no, you can't do it. Only God can do that. You can't do this. She says, well, I want to be like God. I don't want to be able to do that. And the uh, the fisherman goes down. He's scared to ask the flounder one more. He uh, says, but he goes down and does ask the flounder. And the flounder says, well, in that case, you must go back to the piss pot. So the history of the stronger and stronger theories is like this. So things called large cardinals. That's exactly what I was thinking. Large, yeah, the things called large cardinals, and you get stronger and stronger ones, and you get you get more and more results from them. And uh, uh, on the other hand, there's one cardinal called the Reinhardt cardinal, which turns out to be so big that zero equals one. Oh, really? In other words, I didn't it, know it's, inc it's inconsistent. Uh, uh, the the cardinal. So now there are people who play the game of well, how close can we come to the inconsistency without, without, without actually being inconsistent? You know, and there's some people who think that well, since the proof of that inconsistency uses the axiom of choice, maybe if we drop the axiom of choice, we could add that and we get some theory that is stronger in terms of its what it can prove about number theory and so forth than any of these set theories of large cardinals. Um, though it isn't strictly stronger than theories with large cardinals because it doesn't have the axiom of choice. Nonetheless, it would long. And maybe that's where we would find the the way to choose between um, uh, the way wouldn't wants to go and the way these other people want to go, maybe. Um, so, but, it, but at present, um, at present, that that's, that's the situation. Uh, if you understand the logic of the thing, we don't debate anymore. These sophisticated people and, and, and logically sophisticated people don't much debate about where's the right place to stop, you know. And so, damn it, dumb it looks rather retrograde and trying to argue that you know the intuitionism is where you should stop and not go on to these other things. And there are people who argue for finitism and predicativism. That's all wrong. What you have to do is realize the pattern. 
of how the things get stronger and just what risks you're taking when you move to a stronger one and just what uh, benefits you're getting from doing it. And when you've understood that, that's all there is to understand about it. That's 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 one view, or at least the logicians, may, many logicians who hold this view might think that, well, any other question you ask at this point, except about how the development of this thing and where various things are placed in it, that's a metaphysical question and we don't need to concern ourselves with metaphysical questions. So, well, there's a lot there and I have a lot of questions, uh, but first, I guess a few comments. So I, I entirely understand your desire not to put words into Hugh Wooden's mouth, but I will relay words from other set theorists that I've spoken with. So Joel David Hankins and Joan Bagaria in particular, uh, I think Bagaria just said he, he agreed with Joel, but what Joel said was that he thinks of the objects of set theory as more real in a sense than physical objects. So he is very robustly uh, Platonist about them. He said he has a much, much better understanding of what the empty set is than I think he picked up a teacup. He has no idea what the teacup is. Strings, point particles, no idea, but he has a very firm grasp on the properties of the empty set. And then Another thing I will say is you mentioned Murray Gelman. I spoke a couple of days ago with Andy Strominger, who is one of the leading string theorists. He's at Harvard. And when I asked him about the observation or detection of strings, whether or not he thinks there's anything smaller than strings, this, this sort of question, he said, I don't think about those questions. I gave up on those questions a long time ago. What I'm interested in is the the theory and how I can use it as a tool to solve open problems because he used it in one particular instance to solve this problem of Bekenstein-Hawking radiation that had been around for 25-some years, and it was a really big development. And then the last thing, well, I'm going to, I want to ask you about this Reinhard Cardinal, but before then... Was part of your response your way of saying that you are not interested in the metaphysical question, so you don't want to answer whether or not you think of sets as fictional objects or real abstract objects or some third category? You just don't want to enter into that debate. Well, that's a little... I would like to claim that my view is a little more sophisticated than just saying that, though that that has the spirit of it right. Oh, I wasn't I saying that it I wasn't more sophisticated. I was saying was that the spirit of it? Yeah, that's the, that's the spirit of it. Uh, the actual view is that the the our theories of the world are the product of an interaction between the world and us, and there is no way to describe the world that doesn't have a contribution from us into the way it's shaped, and there's no way to get out what we're. Uh, what we're contributing that doesn't bring in things that are contributed by the world. So um, all, all, all you can do is is do what we do. We made, we do construct the theories and we use them for certain purposes. And now if you ask, um, you know, well, are they real or not? The answer is, um, well, according to the ordinary way people use real, they certainly are real. This cup is real. It isn't the hologram or something like that, or, or a fake cup. It's a real cup. Uh, those, those sorts of things. Um, so-and-so is a real person, whereas someone else, QAnon, 
is not a real person, is a fictitious person, something like that. With that, in that sense, yes, they're perfectly real. Everything will endorse will endorse everything that's part of the standard theory is real in that sense. But other people, when they say it's real, they seem to mean, um, they seem to mean, well, that's just the way, not just the way we see it, that's the way God sees it. And this was, you know, people like Galileo and Kepler sort of explicitly talked that way. And so their realism was ex was explicitly of that form. Once you get past the 19th and 20th century, they'd like to say that as a, uh, well, that's only sort of a metaphor, but basically that's what that that's what they're thinking. So they may they may want to make some extra stronger assertion, and I don't want to make the extra stronger assertion. So uh, I'm in one, one sense a realist, in the sense I'm I'm going to say that they're real, and ever in the same sense in which the tables and chairs are real, and so forth. I'm not going to say they're real in any sense that uh, uh, a human being couldn't hope to know about. Um, uh, I don't know whether that helps or not. It does. It, it, I, I don't want to press you any farther than you want to be pressed on this. So you can just tell me if you want to move on. But I see a very important disanalogy between the cup and QAnon and numbers in the sense that we say the cup is real and QAnon isn't because we can kick the cup and we can't kick QAnon, but we can't kick uh, a set or the universe of sets unless you're sort of like a an impure set theorist. You're a realist in this sense in that this constitutes a set of two things and I can kick this. So I've kicked a set. Well, um, of course, uh, Dr. Johnson tried to refute Barclay by kicking a stone. And one of the first things you do when you teach the introductory survey course on early modern philosophy is one of the questions is, why is this not a refutation of Barclay? Um, and so forth. So uh, kickability, the kickability test, I don't, it's, it's, uh, Rhetorically yeah. forceful. Uh, yeah, I think the best the best response is in something written by Dummett, though I cannot quote it from memory and I don't have the reference with me. But he quotes a, a, an article from the newspaper. And it's something it's about, you know, some policy change of Margaret Thatcher about things pertaining to maritime, to shipping and oceanic pollution or something like that. Yeah, I've forgotten what all the things are. And he says, now you can go look through this article or for this paragraph and look at all the nouns. There's not one of them except maybe Mrs. Thatcher and the Atlantic Ocean that denotes a physical object. There are all other things, you know, about the rates of inflation and the uh, marital status and things like that. But you can't kick a marital status and you can't kick the rate of inflation, though the rate of inflation certainly can kick you and maybe the marital status can also. Um, the uh, uh, So there are lots of things we talk about um, that... Uh, uh, are not are not physically kickable, um, and on the other hand, it's not necessary that to talk about the, the physically kickable things. There are contortions you can go through that will enable you to speak without ever speaking about these things. Um, there's a story by Borges in which he uh, sort of hypothetically suggests a language in which what people never talk about about enduring objects but only it's only talking Barclay's way about about perceptions and um there's uh the the anthropological linguist wharf actually claimed that there were some 
languages spoken in the Pacific Northwest that um, in which, in fact, they don't say their houses. They say it houses over there or it how they don't say there used to be a house they housed over there what the, the what's the, the true part of this is that apparently the things that for us would be nouns and for us would be verbs are go through the same kinds of grammatical transformations so you can put them in the you know tenses and things so that's how you get from a house to something that used to be a house um and then there's something that klein invented well <clears throat> called um predicate functor logic in which you can systematically eliminate all uh all all nouns it and everything everything just becomes everything just becomes their verbs and their adverbs There's a lot more adverbs in our in our language but everything's expressed that way and so we never have nouns and so we never never have the appearance of you're talking about things with properties so for me all of that stuff is on the side of what we contribute the development theory. We contribute the structure of the kind of language we have. We have no real reason to believe that God speaks to the angels in a language like that. We have no real reason to believe that intelligent extraterrestrials would have a language like that. I shouldn't say speak because we don't know how, in fact, maybe they use bioluminescence to communicate or something like that, but whatever they do, they have a language thus structured. Um, uh, and so that even having having an ontology at all is is optional. And uh, there is one which is sort of the prevailing one, and I'm just uh, prepared to su subscribe to it and not think it needs to be apologized for in philosophical moments. So you don't have to keep your fingers crossed when you talk about it or anything like that. It's just okay as it is. Uh, the... Um, one thing that greatly influenced me, um, which you might read, is I think if you read about nine pages into William James's pragmatism, he, there's a passage where he describes how the early modern people thought about, or maybe the classical antiquity people thought about what they were doing with their with their discoveries and the kind of realism that they had and so forth. Uh, and then at the end of that, he says, but of course we now know that <laughs> that's not right at all and sketches this alternate this alternate picture so that's the pragmatist picture and that's the picture towards which i tend so if you have that view these questions don't uh don't arise in the way that people think they do there they play a play of certain uses because people in trying to deal with them have come up with all sorts of stuff uh without actually solving the problem but uh the uh, uh that they were working on but but having other other uses, so it's you know, it's good that there are people thinking about this. But um, I don't I don't want to think about it, and there are other people who don't want to think about it. And I think it's because you're not going to answer the question in the terms in which being it's being put. Okay, to answer it, you have to step back from the what are you doing when you're classifying things as real and unreal. No, thank you very much. That was. That was all really helpful. As you mentioned, there are there are obvious there are, are lots of ways people uh, can contort language or respond to like, oh, marital status. Sure, we say it's real, but in a materialist sense, it's it's not real. There are but I but I, I totally take your and understand your your pragmatist response to this. Well, there are two ways to do that. 
and what you see has been done with the with the numbers. One people would think would work think we well we have to in fact describe and it may be a fairly elaborate process how we could say everything we want to say with ever without ever speaking about marital status, you know, and what we could put on the all these government forms that you have to fill out in triplicate for various purposes, you know. But we say we could say all of that without ever even giving the appearance of believing in such things as marital statuses. And there are other people who say, no, it's enough just to take it back in the philosophical room moment and say, didn't really believe it. It's just a useful fiction. So that's a fundamental difference uh, among nominalists. In some, in some sense, that may be a deeper difference than the difference between nominalists and, and anti-nominalists. Mm-hmm. Right. I am partial to this to like fields program this sort of thing i don't have a a worked out stance completely because i'm just not that far along but do you at all think or have you much considered since issues of language were central to your response uh linguistic conventionalism like uh, jared warren here at stanford has recently revitalized that with his book the shadows of syntax but um i mean Conventionalism, I think, was dominant at one point, but then totally died. So I don't know whether you think it's still a, a live issue. Well, um, this is not my forte, but my impression is that what was being called conditional uh, conventionalism died because um, <clears throat> they were trying to explain how various things, how we could have knowledge of these things about about numbers and so forth, and how we could, how really they were less interested in the ontology than on the distinction between the uh, a priori and the a posteriori. How could we have a priori knowledge of uh, substantive things? And the uh, the argument was supposed to be, this answer was supposed to be, well, they just reflect linguistic conventions. And then uh, the objection was put by Quine at the end of uh, his paper. Truth by Convention, which I, once talking with Saul Kripke, found that we agreed that this is the most important thing he ever wrote. I love that and, paper. Yeah. So at the end of it, uh, well, the paper as a whole has its longers, but at the end of the paper, he says, look, um, we've only had time to establish finitely many uh, explicit conventions, but the things that are supposed to be knowable a priori are infinitely many. So it must be that some some of them are not established by explicit conventions. Well, people will say, yes, they just they follow from the explicit conventions. But then what sort of fact is it that they follow? That seems to be a sort of, uh, you know, that's a logical fact. It seems to be an a priori fact, an analytic fact and so forth that you haven't derived from conventions. So there's something going on here. Saul takes it. uh, This is one way into the uh, his stuff about Wittgenstein. In the end, he starts. He actually is given seminars in which he start. He starts from uh, Lewis Carroll on Achilles, what the tortoise said to Achilles, and then goes to this passage of Quine, and then then into uh, his paradox. Um, so now, what was I saying? So I think that's the reason why conventional came in. Now, for Quine, conventionalism should have. Um, that there is a sense in which there's a lot that's conditional. I think it's something he never conventional in our theory of the world. There's something he never really denied, and he had the strongest possible reason for agreeing with it when his student David Lewis, 
produced his dissertation, which became the book Convention. And here he describes what, what it means is that it's conventional is that things could have been done a different way uh, without our being in any, you know. And if some extraterrestrials do it a different way from us, they're not doing better what we're doing worse or doing worse what we're doing better. Things just could be could be different. In that sense of conventional, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of convention. As for uh, other more recent views, I would have to do more reading before expressing an opinion no, about them. No problem. <laughs> did you speak much? I I don't. As far as I'm aware, so I did a I had a conversation with Frank Jackson and Graham Priest on the show all about David Lewis and philosophy of math did not come up at all. They I don't know if you recall, uh, maybe like 20 years ago, they did a joint issue uh, commemorating his death with a lot of people's papers about David Lewis. And I think they identified in the introduction, if I recall correctly, some 12 domains in which he had major enduring impacts, but philosophy of math isn't one of them. He was your colleague for quite some time. Did you two speak much about it? Well, we didn't speak much about it, but I did, in fact, um, we produced one little joint appendix to one of his papers um, together with Alan Hazen. And in that paper, he does say something about philosophy and mathematics. It's about, he's talking about set theory and how you should think about set theory. Oh, right. And, uh, and he says in that, um, uh, look at the he's, he's talking about the nominalists and other people who think that they you know they're philosophical corrections to math, to mathematics and uh lewis says this is just comically immodest are you actually going to tell the mathematicians that they must re reform their ways because philosophy has discovered that there aren't any numbers what are you going to what are you going to do to show them this are you to show them about philosophy's previous great discoveries like that motion is impossible and uh and <laughs> other things like that it's a very it's a very nice passage i i used to quote it in every other paper i wrote but um uh, you have to stop doing that after a while so he it's not that he didn't ever think about it he did think about some things he just didn't uh, he wasn't much interested in the way that things were going. The... Yeah, maybe I, I was forgetting about it, but he did write this book, or maybe it's not a book. Was it Parts and Classes? Parts of Classes. He wrote the book Parts of Classes, and then um, and that is some things were discovered very shortly after the book came out that would have made the book look rather different, so he published a paper called Mathematics as Megathology, um, which... Then Reese was a sum was a summary of the book as it would have been if he'd written it after he'd learned these other things. And so the the, the key passages in both of these sources about the uh, philosophy's discovery versus the discoveries of mathematics. Um, right. This you mentioned finitism earlier in our conversation. There is a I mean, he was once a towering figure in model theory. Abraham Robinson, he I mean, he is the creator of non-standard analysis, which is still a major paradigm. But he was a finitist, and that confronted him with a serious problem because the entirety of his career, or what he was known for, what he developed, revolved around um, infinity in the form of non-standard models of arithmetic, and infinitesimals, I mean, more particularly in the way that he uh, reformed 
the or proposed an alternate way of doing calculus. But so he had this immense difficulty and his he responded to this not particularly satisfactorily by saying, yeah, all of this is meaningless, but we really just have to keep doing it. <laughs> and we have to, we have to, even, even though philosophy has shown him that there are no infinite collections. So much of what we've been talking about regarding set theory is strictly meaningless. As he put it, we, we will continue playing this game because sometimes it delivers very meaningful, finitary results. So he, he totally, was open to and thought mathematicians should entertain this picture of Platonism that facilitates their work. Well, it's interesting that you say that about Robinson. I didn't know it, or maybe I knew it and forgotten it. Um, He and Tarski are generally cited as the founders of the two main directions in in the East and West model theory, the beginning. Um, uh, Tarski had a very similar thing. Tarski professed to be a nominalist. He was just a, uh, what they say in French, uh, no pratiquant. He was he he believed in it, but didn't, didn't practice it. Ador didn't practice because he didn't see how to get the results he wanted while sticking to those. He he would do it if he could, but uh, he didn't see how to do it, and so he didn't. So there are people that were there, that that there are the the position that though I think it's wrong that that you know behaves like the orthodox in doing sciences over and then takes it all back when doing philosophy is not is certainly not held only by philosophers as opposed to scientists or mathematicians the percentage of mathematicians that have any serious sustained interest in in philosophy is very very small much smaller than it was in the 1930s when there were still debates about which direction mathematics should develop and so forth uh, and among them you can find um probably representatives of every position that's held by a philosopher uh except the ones that are the most complicated and plus some other ones that it would be held only by mathematicians because they're too sophisticated you know the philosophers have heard or have heard about the machinery in them so there are certainly people who who say that um and so all i can say is say well i think that's wrong but uh i think he's reading too much into what he's saying when when um when he's what we do when we speak about existence or reality or something, he's taking that in too strong a sense. Yeah, if he's yeah, if he if he's a a, a fine, I think people have, I think finitists in general are. They're saying that there aren't any infinite things. Well, what do they mean by are or aren't? Um, yeah, his 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 arg- I mean, he had a number of arguments, but one of them it was quite basic, and it was just epistemic he said the idea of a collection of two or a set of two or three or five uh, sets uh, of five chairs presents itself to my mind quite clearly i can grasp these finite sets i can grasp an arbitrarily a large finite set but as soon as we pass into the realm of the infinite I cannot wrap my mind around it. And if I can't wrap my mind around something at all, if like Hilbert said, yeah, if I don't see it or anything like that, any of these things, I have no license to assert it in my mathematics. And thus any sentences that or purport to refer to an infinite totality, they can't interpret, they can't be interpreted. So they are, and again, 
quote, he says it's literally meaningless. But at the same time, mathematics has been very useful. So, yeah. Well, what you've described was Hilbert's official view. Only Hilbert wanted to concede that on the plane of philosophy and concede nothing on the plane of mathematical practice by saying that the mathematical practice was useful because it produces true finitist statements. It is actually not so easy to find any, his notion of what's meaning, finitistically meaningless, meaningful was so narrow, was actually not easy to find any statements of that kind that were actually you used any high-powered mathematics to prove. I think the uh, Hermann Weyl mentioned in one Convention, what's called Chebyshev's theorem. It says there's a pro always a prime between n and two n, and that was originally proved by you know, complex analysis or something. And then people found an elementary proof of it, uh, which doesn't do that. So there is a finitist proof of it, but it was known for a long time before there was. But Hilbert said, uh, Hilbert thought, well, you can't. I can't say that. I can't be. I can't, in good conscience, take that position unless I can prove. That the things that are produced, the finitist things that are produced using this infinitistic apparatus are correct. That they are just, it's not necessarily falsehoods. And that quickly reduces to the question that the, that is uh, of the question of consistency. Because if the thing, if it produces a finitist statements are so narrow that if it produces an inconsistent one, you'd be able to show it was inconsistent. So uh, uh, he wanted to show, but that's what Gödel said you can't do. That's what Gödel proves you can't do. You can't prove. Uh, by means that Hilbert would have thought of as meaningful, that is by finitist means, the uh, consistency even of finitist mathematics, let alone of the infinitistic mathematics. And so that's when this other picture came in. Well, then all you can do is com compare the things by their consistency strength, which ones can prove the consistency of which others. But most people who've gone into that sort of began to think it's, it's sort of, uh, I don't know, Sort of unsophisticated to think well, where's the right place to draw where the where where is the line to draw one or the other, um, because certainly you can certainly you can imagine an infinite series of things. Imagine railroad tracks just get harder and harder to see the farther they were ahead, but have infinitely many ties on them. Uh, I mean, there are many things you could use. Many things you could are sort of imaginable that are not so. Uh, for which that um, their imaginability is not a conclusive proof of their existence, so let's say, in the sense in which philosophers are looking for the proofs of existence of things have been looking for them. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that you can really imagine an infinite set of train tracks. I understand what you're saying. We can talk about it, uh, and we can make use of talking about it, but I'm not sure if we can really wrap our minds around the length of an infinite set of train track, just, just how big this is. But this, this might interest you. I mean, your connection to Hilbert is on the one hand, I mean, obvious since he's the main finitist, but it's also quite uh, important because Robinson made this very explicit. So his primary paper where he most, uh, rigorously lays out his position though it's still i think lacking for a philosopher because he he wasn't a philosopher even though he was philosophically informed was called formalism 64 and he wrote it shortly before his death in the late 60s in 64 in which he sort of said i mean he doesn't say it this grandiosely but he takes his view to be 
the success for the success for, <laughs> I don't know why I keep saying success for the successor of Hilbert's uh, though. Granted, if he wants to maintain his formalism, he has to, in some sense, deal with uh, the developments of incompleteness. Well, it's good that he saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He saw that, and I don't think that he really successfully dealt with it. But anyway, the the last thing I'll ask before we finish, since you brought it up, and I'm curious about it, is this Reinhard Cardinal, and you said that it is of such a size that it leads to inconsistency. So obviously it can't be accepted because we can't be having one equals zero that there's a law of explosion that tanks the whole set theory. Does this cardinal then, in a sense, granted that the universe of sets is infinite, does it still put a cap on the size of the universe of sets if this cardinal is so large that it, it renders set theory inconsistent? Well, the thing is that the large cardinal axioms never just say that they're very large sets. In some sense, you could, there just isn't any way to say that directly. They say something that has the uh, implications that a certain set is very much larger than all the sets we've been considering so far. Um, so in that sense, they prove their existence of very large sets. So... Um, the, the inconsistency of the Reinhardt cardinal means that, um, well, you can't hope to assume to formulate an, uh, along this route to formulate a, a large cardinal axiom, um, you know, that will that will fit into the series somewhere and will be any of any use. But that's um, the fact that it's the only example like this means that that it doesn't mean that there really aren't any other examples, but that the other examples have been done by people not nearly as sophisticated as Reinhardt, and they fall apart rather obviously, more or less immediately. So there are, it is certainly possible, and you're looking to get something that's going to imply that there are very large sets or that the universe of set theory is very tall. Um, nothing ever just purely says that. You always have to say it by means of you know, some some additional statements, and that always opens the possibility for an inconsistency. So the fact that there's some ways to know, um, there, there is no, you know, if you look how many things are in the universe, there's as many as, they, as there could be. This, there's not, you know, it's not there's some bound, and you wonder why does it stop here, and there are, and no, there's nothing bigger than that. Everything that could be there is there. Um, if there can't be a Reinhardt cardinal, it's because it's inconsistent. You know, if there isn't a Reinhardt cardinal, it's because it's inconsistent. There couldn't be one. Well, I don't know whether that's helpful, but uh... <laughs> it's helpful. Well, John, this has been an honor because you're a, a a total legend in the philosophy of math and mathematical logic, and I am so thankful that you took the time to have this conversation with me. Thanks so much for doing it. Well, thanks for the invitation. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.